The National Surgical Adjuvant Breast and Bowel Project continues to design Phase three randomized clinical trials addressing a variety of critical research issues, and I met with Dr. Tom Gillian, Principal Investigator of NSABP B39, evaluating the use of partial breast irradiation after breast-conserving surgery to obtain an update of the NSABP's work. Dr. Julian began our conversation by commenting on recent studies evaluating the emerging role of MRI in breast cancer management. It's obviously a technology and a device that's in evolution, and certainly it's a powerful tool. I think it has helped us identify patients who are in the high-risk category who may have malignant lesions that go undetected by mammography, and we know that there's obviously a false negative rate with mammography, missing items, and so the MRI has been now shown in a number of reports to do a better job at detecting lesions in that high-risk population of patients, patients who have significant family history for breast cancer, or they may be BRCA1 or 2 carriers, or the other high-risk population is the individual who has had a breast cancer, and you're now looking at the contralateral breast or perhaps trying to identify a recurrence in the ipsilateral breast that a mammogram can't tell you is there because of potential effects from the prior surgery or radiation therapy. So MRI is a very powerful tool in that sense. There are some conflicting issues with MRI because there is a concern that there is a high rate of false positive detection with MRI, and that then necessitates the surgeon delaying an operation so that the patient can then go back and maybe get a focused ultrasound and a biopsy of that area, or the patient may have to have a MRI-guided biopsy. That raises a bit of anxiety, obviously, in the patient who's now worried that maybe there's something more going on and she can't have breast-conserving therapy. She wants badly to keep her breast, but is now afraid that maybe she shouldn't. And so these are things that enter into some of the mix of how to determine when to use an MRI, when not to use an MRI. But I think if one is going to use the MRI and one really wants to promote breast-conserving therapy, then it really obligates the surgeon and the patient to say, okay, we found a second or a third lesion in that breast, we need to get a focused ultrasound, get a biopsy of it, and then make a determination, not automatically go to a decision for a mastectomy. We know historically that most of those lesions that may be detected now by MRI are of no real clinical consequence, ultimately, for an outcome. So are there situations right now where you're using MRI in you know, a non-clinical trial type setting? Yes, there are. Number one, we do screen high-risk patients. In our own practice, we have a high-risk program, and we have detected in that population patients currently a few breast cancers that were not identified by the mammogram. Now, those are individuals who have a significant family history of first and second degree relatives and also carriers for the BRCA1 and 2 gene. And most of the time, these are individuals who have a very dense breast 
as determined by mammography. And so the mammogram isn't helpful. In the other group of patients that we're using MRI in, it is the patient who has a newly diagnosed cancer. They fall into a category of, again, having a fairly dense breast, and they may be premenopausal or perimenopausal, or they may have been postmenopausal but been on hormone therapy, and that does affect the density of the breast tissue. And so we're looking at that cancer to determine the extent of the disease to sometimes give us a better approximation of size so that we can carry out a good lumpectomy with a negative margin the first go-around. And we also use it to look at the opposite breast, the contralateral breast, because there is information now, recent studies showing that about a 3 to 4% contralateral rate based on the information from Connie Lehman study, but there historically has been some other earlier information showing it may be as high as 10%. So that's something to look at. But the neat thing with the MRI is that it has such a high negative predictive value that if you tell the woman that breast is clear, it gives her a real sense of security that she doesn't have to automatically say, geez, I have one cancer on my right breast, do I have to automatically have surgery on my left breast? So I think that's a key tool. The other area where we're using MRI heavily, and again, this is off of trial because there are no real trials looking at this, is in the neoadjuvant setting for patients who have large tumors that, in spite of that, they would like to have breast-conserving procedures. So we will evaluate the breast with an MRI and determine the size and then use neoadjuvant chemotherapy and follow a sequence to ensure that there is obviously a reduction in the tumor size with therapy. And then ultimately, it helps in the final surgical planning If you're going to do breast-conserving therapy because you've got the breast, if you have a complete clinical response, that's a great finding on the MRI because you're probably going to be carrying out a very nice lumpectomy. Unfortunately, yet it hasn't, I don't think there's been enough information to equate complete clinical response on an MRI with complete pathologic response. And that would be a neat thing if we could find out by using some of the imaging modalities, whether it be MRI or PET or whatever the next biologic imaging modality is, to equate the complete path response to the image response, because then we might be able to ultimately not have to go to the OR to prove that there is no tumor left in the breast. I want to ask you about some of the trials that are available right now and how it's playing out in your own practice in terms of talking to patients about going in them. You mentioned neoadjuvant therapy, and the NSABB has a really great trial out there, B40, Mm -hmm. looking at chemotherapy, several different kinds of chemotherapy, and also bevacizumab or Avastin. Have you put patients on that study? Well, in our own institution, that study has just recently opened, so no, we have not personally, but throughout the NSABP, there are patients now who are enrolling, and I think we have somewhere in the neighborhood of less than 1% right at this point because it's just been a recently open trial. It is a complex trial, which does take time to explain to the patient because there are the three arms with chemotherapy and then the introduction of the targeting agent with bevacizumab. And so it's very complex to help the patient understand that trial. Plus, it's then also coupled with the need to secure biopsies of the tissue at points and such. So there was a high level of interest 
in the membership of the NSABP. So we do expect in that HER2 negative population, which it focuses on, which is a large group, that there will be a good enrollment when the sites ultimately all get online. And there has been, and we're very happy about that. So if I have a patient now, and as I say, we just opened this at our institution, so if I have a patient who falls into that category, they are going to get the opportunity to participate in that. There won't be any question about that. Uh, yeah, I think that's going to be interesting to see how patients respond to the idea of, you know, one of the key things about the trial is, as you say, to look at the tissue mm-hmm. and learn more about the process of breast cancer. How do you think patients are going to respond to that type of research? I think so, because number one, there's actually two types of assays that are going to go on in that trial. Number one, there will be the molecular markers looking, grabbing the piece of tissue, and then looking ultimately at the end response of saying, okay, what were the markers that could have predicted for partial response or complete pathologic response along the oncotype line? But there's a second study, too, and on the tissue that is left over, tumor-wise, there is going to be an analysis to look at that tissue to see when there has been incomplete response what other chemotherapy agents it may respond to. So I think from the patient's standpoint, that would be a really neat idea to have to say, okay... Well, if I get a good response, a complete response, I'm going to do really well with it because there is a good prognostic reference to having a complete pathologic response with that. Patients seem to do much better long term. But if they don't respond in a large fashion, then we've got this other alternative to say, okay, we have an ability, though, to look at some other chemotherapies, which we think would work now. And I think that gives the patient some security in this whole area. So I think that would be enticing and exciting. And women do want, in most situations, to try to preserve the breast if there is a good, safe opportunity. And I think the neoadjuvant trials to date are showing that. Now, another, I think, really important trial the NSABP is doing is the B42 study, answering I think one of the most common questions right now that we have in breast cancer, which is we have a whole ton of people who start on aromatase inhibitors, you know, when the trials first came out 2001, so now they were out to that five-year point, which is kind of the initial intent, and the B42 study is going to compare, you know, really a key critical question, which is should you continue beyond five years? Of course, the NSABP pioneered this with tamoxifen looking at duration, and now they're looking at aromatase inhibitors. How do people respond to that one? Well, it's a bit of a mix because you have two groups of patients. You have one group of patients that says, fine, I have no problem with being on the anti-hormone therapy for five years, but, you know, I really don't want to keep taking a pill. Okay, that's fine. Those patients, that trial will obviously not be one that they're going to be excited about. But then you have the other group of patients who have looked at that and they say, well, I'm worried. I've been on this therapy for five years. You're going to take it off. How do I know that I am going to do as good as I am doing now if you take me away? And obviously the answer is, well, we really don't have a good handle on that. We know historically by the tamoxifen trial that it was no better at 10 years versus five years. 
perhaps with the aromatase inhibitors, there may or may not be the advantage. The problems that we're faced with are the potential side effects of being on that aromatase inhibitor for the additional period of time and related to bone mineral density and also the hot flashes, the vaginal dryness, and the discomfort from muscular ache and pain and such. But there are a number of patients who do not feel comfortable coming off, even coming off of the aromatase inhibitor at five years. They look at it as a security blanket. So this does give them an opportunity to participate both in the node negative and node positive groups. A lot of the physicians are uncomfortable with the patients coming off because it seems like there's been a real revelation in terms of the long-term natural history of ER-positive breast cancer and how common relapse is after five years and the threat that women face. And maybe it looks pretty promising. I mean, we don't know about more than five years of an AI, but at least in that five to 10-year window in terms of actually decreasing the relapse rate. What's been your take on this? And has it just been like over the last three or four years that this whole thing evolved? Well, I think so. I think, you know, you had the tamoxifen followed by the letrozole trial, which showed that there was the benefit of continuing anti-hormonal therapy for 10 years. And I think people have drawn conclusions from that, even though it was going from tamoxifen to an aromatase inhibitor. Then you have the information from the Italian study which showed that if you were on tamoxifen for two or three years and then switched to an aromatase inhibitor, you did somewhat better there too. So people are looking at that and saying, well, geez, if we continue, if we kind of like draw a conclusion there, if we continue suppression of estrogen, that that's really going to keep my patient doing well. And it's a bit of a gut reaction with physicians. There's no question, especially in the patient who has had node positive disease and they're ER positive. You know, the oncologists want to give that person more and they do feel uncomfortable. And I see it in the clinical setting right now in patients that I have that are followed by our medical oncologists that they are actually being selective and they will continue an aromatase inhibitor past the five-year mark in patients at this point who have had, say, stage two disease. So I think that the information out there is influencing individuals. Unfortunately, it's not succinct data that is powering it, and I think that's where this trial will help dramatically. I think it's a great study. You mentioned the arthrologists that are seen with some patients on the AIs. I'm curious overall, as a surgeon, what your take is on overall quality, life, and tolerability, AIs versus tamoxifen. Well, I think they're kind of the two groups. The biggest issue with the tamoxifen was the overt complaint of hot flashes and weight gain that we saw in those individuals. And they would handle that okay. There obviously were some, uh, nobody was happy with weight gain, even though the studies that looked at weight gain with tamoxifen never showed it. Patients don't accept that easily. They say, I'm doing this. Well, of course, there could be multiple factors that affect that, and obviously put the onus on or the blame on the tamoxifen. The hot flashes 
patients do seem to tolerate that pretty well. Even there are a number of, obviously, agents that you can use to reduce the hot flashes, but even if they're, um, say, mild to moderate, a lot of patients will say, okay, I don't need the low-dose antidepressant therapy to suppress that. I'm fine. I'll live with it. I'll continue it for the five years I know. With the aromatase inhibitors, there is a little bit more of a problem because there are patients who become so debilitated by the pain and the discomfort that they can't function. You play around and you switch to one of the other aromatase inhibitors that may work, it may not work, and then they're there saying, okay, I can't take it any longer. So I think there is a bit of an issue that patients, and I see this in the clinical area where they're not comfortable with that. I've also had the complaints from patients about the increased symptoms of vaginal dryness and such with the aromatase inhibitors compared to tamoxifen. Tamoxifen, there was a little bit of a benefit there with the AI though that there isn't and so that really has affected individuals and with the kind of coarse hair change and all of this so there are these side effects and I think that that's why the extended use trial is going to be so important because if there's a major benefit of staying on the AI for the 10-year period of time, then I think the patients need to know that and then make an informed decision. If there is no benefit, fine, save them then the side effect problems. I want to ask you also where things are with the trial the NSAVP and RTAG are doing together on partial breast irradiation. Well, it's obviously a trial near to dear to my heart since I oversee it. And again, it's an exciting trial because of the interest in limited breast radiation and possibly removing, again, some of the potential side effects of whole breast radiation therapy and the whole time duration. We had a extremely high interest when this trial was initiated with a very rapid accrual We noticed last year that the ratio, though, of the high to low-risk patients was overwhelmingly starting to go into the low-risk category, and that was going to potentially affect the end results. And so we had to put a temporary hold on the issue of accrual while we switched and closed the accrual to the low-risk patient category and then opened up the accrual to the high-risk category only. We did have to negotiate with the NCI to allow us to expand the patient population by just sheer numbers there. We had to increase the overall accrual by an additional 1,300 patients, which they did agree to do because they felt very strongly the importance of this trial. So right now, it's limited to high-risk patient population, both in the pre- and postpenopausal setting. Accrual has been not as brisk as we thought it would be when we had High planned. risk being what? Well, high risk being the premenopausal individual who is node negative or node positive, ER positive or ER negative, and the postmenopausal individual who is either node positive with ER positive or ER negative status, and then also the postmenopausal individual who is node negative as well. So those are people that we're looking at for that trial. And there, you know, we're obviously, for us, it is going along. We'd like to see a little higher accrual in that because it's a timely issue and we feel that the answer needs to be obtained as quickly as we can. So the interest is there. Obviously, there's a significant interest in the community in 
performing partial breastal radiation therapy outside of trial, there it seems that the focus is more so on that lower risk category, tumors two centimeters or less, node negative individuals, strongly ER positive and such. So we've got ways to go with B39, but working very hard to keep it going. Now the trial allows three different types of PBI, the brachytherapy, conformal, and mammocyte. What's actually playing out in terms of the kinds of therapies that are being used in the study? Well, very interestingly, the 3D conformal therapy is percentage-wise the highest of the three PBI techniques, well over 70% at this time. And then the single brachytherapy device, the mammocyte, and then the multi-catheter brachytherapy. Are you putting patients on the Taylor X trial looking at the oncotype? Well, that trial at our institution has just opened, so we will be, absolutely. That's an interesting study in that, you know, really trying to focus on the patients with an intermediate score and randomizing between hormonal therapy alone, hormonal therapy with chemotherapy. How do you think that's going to play out in terms of actually talking to patients about going on the study where sort of the computer is going to determine whether they get chemo or not? Well, I think it has been. If one looks at the track record nationally with that trial, it's going very briskly with accrual, so obviously patients are accepting it. I think that there's a fair amount of knowledge that is being transmitted about the benefit of the oncotype test to help determine the issue of low-risk and high-risk categories, and I think the patients are accepting that. They certainly do in the clinical setting when you have the Oncotype DX test and you're there and you're talking with them and saying, well, good news, you fall into the low-risk category, you just need anti-hormonal therapy. They love that. They then fall into the high-risk group and they say, okay, I really was hoping I didn't, but I understand now, given the information that I am at real risk of having something bad happen down the line, so I'm willing to take the medicine. The in-between group is the one that obviously gives them the most difficulty because you're explaining that, well, it's plus minus, we're not sure. They have trouble sometimes to determine, well, do I need it? Do I not need it? Okay, I know there may be a benefit, there may not be a benefit. I can't make that decision. So, And then they look to the medical oncologist to say, you decide. Okay. There are some patients who will say, okay, it's indeterminate. I really don't want it, so fine, I can walk away from it. But I think there's a large population of patients that need help with that. And so I think they're willing to obviously accept the electronic flip of the coin in that sense. I know that right now there's a lot of discussion about what the next adjuvant trial is going to be that the NSAPP is going to do with patients with HER2-positive tumors. Of course, we had the real kind of revelation that started a couple of years ago when the NSABP trial, the NCTTG trial, and the European trial, and the HERA trial, the BCRG, four major studies all showed a benefit in uh, this population. What about the issue of HER2 testing? Now it's so much more critical now that we have something that can really be effective in these patients. What advice would you give to a surgeon in terms of trying to make sure that these patients are going to get accurate HER2, and for that matter, ER? Well, I think there are guidelines that are obviously being set up through groups like ASCO and such to help the individuals. And I would tell the surgeons, first of all, talk to your pathologists to say, okay, we have to set up a rational approach to looking at this. Do we have to do fish 
testing on everybody? No. It seems now that the role is pretty much going to be that if you're in the zero end or even the zero one plus end, that fish may not be important. And if you're in the three plus end, fish may not be important. So it's the two. Some In some institutions, the one plus and the two plus need to have the fish assay. And that's okay because actually in my own personal experience, we found patients who were one plus on the like the DACO testing and turned out to be fish positive. Well, that patient then went on to have Herceptin therapy in the adjuvant setting. So I think it's critical that that be obtained on individuals, you know, in the adjuvant setting. And it's key that I think it's communication between the surgeon and their pathology department to say, okay, we need to set up a succinct plan on how we're going to handle this. And the guidelines are there. Also in the neoadjuvant setting, this has become an important factor as well, and the NSABP is launching a trial to look at the HER2-positive population separately for the neoagent approach using, again, the agents of lapatinib and also trastuzumab, both singly and in combination. So there, the HER2 testing also is, well, in a clinical setting, it will be more intense because of looking at the assay with fish, but I think there's no question today that patients need to have the ER are established well and the HER2 analysis established well. Yeah, that neoadjuvant trial is really interesting because that same concept of either combining these two agents or looking at them separately is going to be tested in the adjuvant setting with the European ALTO trial, but you all are going to look at it in the neoadjuvant setting. I'm sure you're going to get some hints much, much sooner than they will in the adjuvant setting. I guess the real question is, we have the trastuzumab, the Herceptin coming on the outside, and then you've got you know this TKI, lapatinib, that has an anti-HER2 effect inside. And you know the hope that maybe the two of them are going to synergize, but I guess at this point we have no idea. No, not yet. And I think that's the novelty of the trial, and I think that that's why it should raise a high level of interest and importance. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the NCI just a few months ago had like a two-day conference just on preoperative therapy, you know, breast cancer. And I think my take on it is that the real excitement is now to start to look at the biology. You know, it's not so, I think in the beginning, it would make sure there's an effect, improve breast conservation, et cetera. But what I really see a lot of excitement about is letting people like Soon Peg from the NSABP really take a crack at seeing what's going on inside these tumors. No question. When you look back at the first trials, B18 and, of course, B27, and you saw the effect of what was happening with those tumors with neoadjuvant therapy, it really looked like a great platform to say, okay, we can now start using this to try to predict in a clinical fashion what is going to happen to the patient potentially downline by knowing, you know, the number of positive nodes that might be left after the neoadjuvant chemotherapy was given. And certainly the prognosis worsens, obviously, as more positive nodes are identified afterwards. But to look at the tumor in the molecular fashion and be able to predict response ultimately by whatever drug therapies are being used, I think will certainly start to help tailor therapy for the individual patients in a more precise way in the future. So I think that that as a platform is exciting and to also use the complete pathologic response as the surrogate 
endpoint now, I think will help us get the information sooner than waiting for the ultimate disease-free survival or relapse-free survival or survival data, which will be there as well, but that certainly is going to be much further down the line.